All right. Thanks, Julie. Um, so my name is Joel, in case this is your first time here at Res City. And uh, so you probably picked up on this if you didn't know it already. We're actually going to be going through the book of John here for the next few months. And this is our uh, second week that we are going to be going through it now. Last week we kind of introed it. And we talked about how um, God's glory has come to earth. And it's come to earth in the form of a, of a flesh and blood uh, uh, Middle Eastern man who lived 2,000 years ago. Like this is what John, this is the claim John is making that um, what, everything that God is doing has come in the form of this guy named Jesus. And, and John is writing his book specifically so that we would come and see the glory that has appeared now that is, that is from God and that we would uh, pay attention to it and see what this glory looks like, see what God is doing in his glory. And that's what we're going to be doing here in, in this book of Jesus. John for the at least or for the for the next few months and so I'm excited to do this I've been very excited for this series for a long time John has long been uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible and so I hope that you guys uh, enjoyed as much as, as I have as I've been studying and preparing for this um, and, and and again I want to challenge you all to, to not miss the coming of Jesus as we uh, go through this book to not uh, to not you know be distracted or to not feel like I've read this book a bunch of times, I've read about Jesus coming a lot of times, like don't miss his coming because it's super important that we pay attention to it as he comes. Um, so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be going through um, uh, the, the, the account of John the Baptist. And so you got a, a sense for what the passage is about just now as Julia read it. And one of the things that you probably noticed is, is the word testimony shows up quite a bit. And actually, last week I skipped over the, these few verses and then I tacked, this is a verse from today's passage too, um, that actually introduces John earlier. I figured let's just you know throw this all together as we talk a little bit about John the Baptist um, and, and how John the writer introduces them. Okay, so confusing. John the Baptist is not the same as John the writer of the book. They're two different people, um, but so don't get confused. I might call John the Baptist just JB today or something like that uh, to help you <laughs> to not be too confused. It's a little bit confusing. Apparently John is a very popular name uh, for, uh, for parents in uh, the first century in the, in the whatever time that John the Baptist and John the writer of the gospel were born. But you'll, you'll notice, again, when John, John the writer introduces John the Baptist earlier in this passage, he says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, okay, so the very first thing he uses to describe John the Baptist is the word witness, to testify uh, concerning that light so that all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness, again, to the light. And then as we jump into our passage today, verse 19, John the writer says, now this was John the Baptist's testimony, when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So this theme of witness and testimony is obviously really important to kind of understand what John the writer is doing. And John the Baptist is not the only witness, is not the only one who provides testimony in the book of John. It actually is a pretty common theme. You'll see these words get used a lot through different uh, people that John the writer introduces. And it's very clear, like, John the writer has it as his goal uh, to to, to help us to, to see witnesses, almost as if he's presenting like a sort of uh, case, right, in a court trial or something. He brings these witnesses to testify 
to the fact that God's glory has come and this person named Jesus, this actual person who lived, who John the writer knows very well, that's very clear that he is a very, uh, was very familiar with Jesus, he was very close with Jesus, he's trying to help it so that we can understand what happened too, again, by presenting these, these sort of witnesses and, and their testimony as a way to sort of back up the book's claims. So we're going to talk about the sort of, the, the importance that this has on how we view the Bible as history a little bit later in the sermon. But, but, for, but first, I just want to like intro John the Baptist, um, in case you don't know a whole lot about this guy. Because he shows up in all of the Gospels, all four of them. He's a really important character uh, in the Gospels. And just in the history of Christianity as a whole, John the Baptist is, he's kind of a big deal. So we're just, let's just intro him. Um, so John the Baptist, he shows up sometimes in the late 20s AD. Uh, we know he's related to Jesus too. And this kind of, you know, remember uh, for Christmas, for the Advent series, we talked about Elizabeth and, and Mary's song. Um, that they're, the reason they're getting together is because they're both about to have children. They're, they're related to one another and they're both about to have children who are really important in God's purposes as plans to redeem Israel and to, and to, to, to do something about evil in the world. And, it's, and the reason they get together because they're related. So that means that John the Baptist and Jesus themselves are also related. Now John the Baptist goes out of his way to really style himself like an Old Testament prophet. He even dresses and kind of acts in a way that really mirrors especially Elijah, the Old Testament prophet Elijah. So apparently he, he liked to, he hung out in the wilderness. He kind of wasn't a, you know, he he wasn't about like hanging out in, in normal society. He was very crunchy. I think that's a, isn't that a term that people use? Sound when they're really organic. John just ate locusts and honey and he wore camel skin. That was his thing. He just liked to hang out and do that kind of stuff out in the wilderness. And you're supposed to, you're supposed to kind of see a, a parallel to the prophet Elijah in what John does with that. Now, prophets are people who show up to preach God's word into a specific uh, context with an eye on, on sort of getting a response from people that will, will mirror the challenge or that they're proclaiming. The thing that God is doing or wants from the people, he, they're, they're preaching so people will respond in a certain way. And, and John is doing this as well. So he fits the profile of a prophet perfectly. Um, he's announcing the sort of imminent judgment that God is, is coming and, and a response is needed from people. A response of, of repentance and then baptism. That's the main thing that makes up his ministry. Now we'll find out in the passage John didn't really know what to do after that, which is kind of interesting. Um, but he knew he was called to do this one thing, to preach that God was coming, he, you know, that, that it wasn't going to be a super comfortable thing for everybody and that the proper response to God's coming was repentance and baptism. So John sets up his ministry out in the Judean wilderness, and, and he is, um, he's, he's taking people, he's baptizing them, uh, for, and, and call, calling them to repent of their sins. And, and we, we know, both from, from Scripture, but also from sources outside of Scripture, that John the Baptist is actually a really important figure. He was really well known in the region. So um, there's, a, there's a writer, a guy named Josephus. You might have heard his name before. He's actually our main source of information about first century Palestine outside of the Bible. So when we want to know what, like, what's going on in this area, the Bible and Josephus are basically our main uh, 
points of, of, of knowledge for, for what that area looked like. There wasn't a whole lot of other good sources on that. And Josephus himself, who writes this, this long history, kind of details lots of stuff about what takes place in the region for a for, for hundred years or whatever. And he's writing in the late first century. So in the 70, 70s to 80s AD is when he's writing. He actually writes about John the Baptist in his book as well. So we know that John had a big enough of an impact on the region that Josephus thought, I should probably write about this guy too. If I'm trying to tell a good history of the Jewish people, he was writing for, actually for the Romans to better understand the, the area. He figures, I, bet, I, I can't tell that story without including John the Baptist and his uh, sort of impact. And so we know that the, the fact that Josephus writes about him means that he's stirring tr- up trouble and he has a lot of people coming in and, and, and getting baptized. But then they go out as well. So he's well known in the region and beyond. And we actually, we know that um, a lot of people who met John, who get baptized by John, go off and do their own thing. They maybe move out of the Palestinian area. They're living in some other place in Greece or Rome. And actually in the book of Acts, um, Paul and some of his, his, uh, his companions run into some disciples of John the Baptist out in Ephesus. And they actually hadn't even really heard about Jesus or any of the other stuff. But they had gone through, they'd, they'd gone through uh, the baptism, the repentance that John was doing. And they're able to say, hey, listen, what you guys did was a setting up for like our message too. So we know that John had this impact that spread out throughout the whole Roman Empire really. Now, John, um, we, we don't get any uh, information about this in the book of John, but John the Baptist, he actually, we get a good kind of detail of his death in the synoptic, in the other Gospels. We get a little uh, a window into how that takes place. So, like, there's a view of prophets, like they're just fortune tellers, you know? You kind of stumble into their office and you pay them and they tell you some, a fortune about what's going to happen down the road. That's not what biblical prophets are. These, these guys, like... People, they're not well-liked, especially by those in power, because they're challenging the status quo, um, speaking on God's behalf, and that's the kind of thing that gets you killed, right? If you're doing your job well enough, you're pissing off the right people who have the power to do things like behead you, which is actually what happens to John the Baptist. Um, he, uh, Herod, who is kind of the, the overseer of the region at the time, um, takes, on his, his, takes on his niece as his wife, and actually this, this woman, Herodias, had been married to, I think, his two brothers previously, so talk about a very complicated relationship. And John sort of challenges this, using kind of his platform as a prophet to say, this is not right, it's not good for this to be modeled for God's people. And he gets thrown in prison, and actually he, he hangs out there for a while. Herod won't kill him because he's so popular among the common people that he realizes, like, this might start a riot if I actually go ahead and kill the guy, which is what I want to do. But eventually, through a, kind of a, a series of, of circumstances, uh, John, ends up, John the Baptist ends up getting beheaded by Herod. And we have that in the Synoptic Gospel. And also Josephus talks about this as well. So it kind of just tells you like how big of a deal John the Baptist was, but also kind of tells us like this is what happens sometimes when you're willing to be uh, a faithful witness to Jesus. It doesn't always end well, we find, Um, but um, it's still important for us to go do this. So so this is our first uh, witness in the book of John is John the Baptist. So there's a little background in him. Let's actually jump into the passage now and kind of break down what's happening. And then once we've done that, we've made some observations, we'll talk a little bit of application about how we're called to kind of follow in John the Baptist's footsteps in some ways. 
So John 1, 19 to 21, let's just get right back into this. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but he confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So here's what's happening. So in the first century Jewish world, you have these kind of religious authorities, but they're not just religious authorities. They're also political authorities. We separate these two things out. We have a strong separation of church and state in America. This is actually not at all how it worked in the first century. The people who hold religious power also hold all the political power, basically. And those people who hold that power are the chief priests, or sometimes you've heard of the Sanhedrin, maybe, um, or the, the Sadducees. Now, these all mean different things, but for our purposes, that you can kind of combine them together, and that's who sends a delegation out to the wilderness to figure out what John the Baptist is up to. These are kind of the, their job is to kind of oversee the religious life, the, the temple worship, the sacrifice for sins, making sure people are kind of in line and following God's purposes, God's law. It's their job to make sure this happens. So you can kind of understand why they would want to know if there's this prophet out in the wilderness, we should probably go get a handle on what he's saying and doing out there. Now, um, it, now, it's not just that, though. Like, these are people who are concerned with kind of staying in power and making sure that they, uh, making sure that they can kind of maintain that, that power. And so, when a prophet comes along, speaking from God, you, they could see that as sort of a challenge or a threat to their power. So, what they want to do is they want to categorize him. They want to figure out, what is he up to? Can we use him, or do we got to get rid of him? And with Jesus, we'll find out... At the end of the book of John, they make the decision, we got to get rid of this guy. Like, he is causing too much trouble. So they, so they go out, and they want to figure out who, okay, so dude, all right, we get it. You're, you're a prophet, or you think you're a prophet, you're speaking from God, whatever. But tell us, look, who, who are you saying you are? Because there's actually all this expectation about God coming back and, and, and doing, sort of coming and, 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 and calling for repentance perhaps and, and doing his work to free Israel from their oppressors. We're going to talk a little bit about that in just a little bit. But that's not an out-of-the-box out of idea that what John the Baptist is doing. And there's actually these different like lanes or different kind of ideas about what it would look like when God would come back and who might be a part of that movement. And that's actually what they ask him here. So, all right, so dude, are you saying you're the Messiah? He's like, no. Okay, well, are you Elijah? Because this is another idea. And they're actually borrowing from Malachi 4.5 where God is going to send Elijah, he says, to kind of precede um, his coming. And John the Baptist says, nope. That would not be right either. And so they're like, are you the prophet? That's a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15, this sort of big-time prophet who's like Moses who's going to come. And John says, no, that's actually not, not right either. So they've kind, of they've kind of gone through the gamut of all of the ideas of expectation that they would have had for um, what it would look like when God would come and who would kind of precede that. Finally, they said, who are you? Just give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? So the representative was like, come on, dude, just throw us a bone here. We need, we need you to tell us something, right? We got to go back to these guys who sent us, and we got to give them some sort of category, right? Remember, we got to figure out what to do with you, because it's, you know, we're the ones who are actually in charge of worship around here. We're the ones who actually get to say what God wants you to do around here. So you got to tell us something so that we can figure out what to do with you. And so John replies to them in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. So what John, is, John the Baptist is doing there is he's quoting Isaiah 40 verses 3. Now, I keep telling you, 
I'm going to get to this stuff. All right, we're going to get to that in just a second. I actually want to read that passage for you. But let's keep going here, and let's, let's see what else happens in the passage before we get to that Isaiah 40 uh, thing that he's quoting. Because that's actually super important to understand John's mission and what God is doing in the, in, in the present time here in the book of John. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? So this is best rendered. Remember I said that the chief priests sent some representatives, and the chief priests, the Sadducees, or the Sanhedrin are, are all kind of a similar type of group. The Pharisees are not the same group. Now, we're going to give the Pharisees their full treatment here at another time. I actually have put some videos out on YouTube, on our YouTube channel, that kind of go in depth and kind of explain some of the different groups in Israel at the time, explain the region, so you can kind of get a sense for where John's ministry is taking place. And so if you would really like to dive in deeper on this stuff and really kind of you know, make it your goal to really understand in depth what's going on in, in Jerusalem and in Judea at the time that it's taking place, that's available to you. I highly recommend it. You go watch it because I made it, and I think it's really good. Um, but if you really want to figure out the, the, the chief priests and the, and the Pharisees, go, go, go do that. We will go through it in a sermon a little bit later on when the Pharisees get a fuller treatment. But basically all you need to know is some Pharisees tagged along here with this. The Pharisees are a different group. They don't always get along well with the chief priests or the Sadducees. But they, they have enough clout where they can tag along with this to also try to figure out what John the Baptist is up to. So the Pharisees that are there, they ask John, all right, dude, so if you're not the Messiah, you're not, the Elijah, you're not Elijah, and you're not the prophet, what authority do you, do you have to go and baptize? Like what, you know, why do you think you can go out here and do this? You don't seem like that you're claiming to be from God in any sense that we understand, so where does this authority uh, for you come from? And, and just, in, just a, a side note, baptism is actually not something that John makes up wholesale. Baptism actually happens in other Jewish sects at the time, but no one's using baptism quite the same way that John is. Actually, um, in the other type of baptism that you'd have, a group called the Essene community or Qumran community, it's not that important what, what they're doing or why they're doing it, but you would baptize yourself. But John is saying, no, 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 listen, I'm baptizing you because I'm kind of God's authorized representative. And so they're like, what makes you think you can do this? Like, where does this authority come from? Where do you, how, why do you think you can be giving forgiveness of sins here? Don't you realize that people are supposed to do that at the temple? You actually seem like a little bit either crazy or dangerous if you're saying people can do stuff apart from the temple. Why do you think you have that authority to do that? John's response is this. I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John says, listen, so what I'm doing right now, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and that, that matters, right? But God is doing something that's so much beyond what I'm doing. I'm just setting the stage for him. And he's coming, and he's going to be the one that my authority derives from. You will find that what I am doing has authority because of the one who comes after me and, and who builds off of what I'm doing. You don't know who that guy is? Turns out I don't actually know who he is either. We're going to find out in the next section here. But when he shows up, you'll know where my authority comes from. You will see it firsthand. God is doing something beyond all of us here. And it's time for all of us to pay attention to this for when this guy actually shows up. The next day, we're told, 
John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So the next day, Jesus shows up and John knows it. He doesn't know how he knows it, but he knows this is it. This is what God is doing. This is what my movement, the stuff I'm doing out here in the wilderness, this is where my authority comes from and makes it so I can actually be doing this. And John says, I was just preparing you for him, but I actually didn't, didn't really know that much beyond this. And, and, and I can tell now, he has this revealed to him that this is the Lamb of God. What God is doing through this person is going to take away the sin of the world. And so I'm just preparing us for that, but, but that's all it is. It's just hors d'oeuvres for the main course that's coming with, now through this guy, who I just finally apparently figured it out. God's decisive action is coming. Now, what's the decisive action for? What, where, where does that come from? What is the need for this that John sees for himself and for Jesus himself? And this uh, actually is where we will go to Isaiah 40, because I think this, is, this ties in specifically to John's sort of self-understanding of who he was and what God was doing through his ministry. So Isaiah 40, 1-3. Now, Isaiah is one of the most important prophetic books in the entire Old Testament. It's one of the longest books in the Bible, but for those of you who have not read through it, it is chock full of an explanation of what God is doing for Israel through exile and what God's plans are, both in Jesus and then also long-term, beyond Jesus, through Jesus, and sort of like for the whole world, what's going to happen through the, the coming of this Messiah, coming of this, this Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. And the reason that, that Isaiah's writing is because he's writing to a people who are waiting for God to show up. They're crying out for him. It's not an intellectual exercise. They recognize that they need this God. And this is, this is uh, one of the most important chapters in the whole book of Isaiah that John is tying to. So he, he quotes verse 3 for himself. But I want to read the first two verses here because those are super important. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So when John quotes this about himself, he's, he's quoting a passage that speaks directly to the, to the Israel of his day, to their concerns. This is a group of people that are ruled by pagan nations, and they're stuck there. And they've been stuck there for, for uh, centuries. They're, they're waiting. Remember, in, we went through the book of Daniel last year. Remember we talked about this exile that, that they go into? They're still in that, and they realize that. They know, okay, we're back in our own land, we rebuilt our temple, but this is totally not, this is totally not what God's expectation uh, for, for what it would look like when we would come back to our land, when we would be ruled by God, when he would redeem us. This, is, this cannot be it. Okay, we are, we are suffering from massive debt, massive debt as a nation. Um, we are oppressed, we are coerced by this, this nation, uh, 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 this kind of parade of nations. It goes from uh, Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. Just over and over again, people who just don't care about us, that don't, don't care about our God, don't want to let us worship our God, and, and, and have ruled 
over us harshly. Like we have been stuck in that for centuries and we are waiting to not be the other anymore. We're waiting to, to make it so this, we're not just the strange people who worships a strange God. We're waiting for the whole world to see our God and see how good he is and, and for him to rescue us and to set us apart and to make us like his chosen people again instead of being at the bottom of everything, getting crushed by everybody else. Now, if you're this group of people, this is what you're waiting for. This is the world that you live in. Naturally, you're asking the question, is God powerful? Is, is the reason he's not shown up because he's not powerful? Is he not powerful enough to do something about evil in the world? Or is he not good? You know, is, is, he, is he, like, is he powerful enough to do something, but he's not good? He doesn't actually love us. He's not going to come and do something for us. Or is he just, a, you know, is he sleeping? Is he, you know just asleep at the wheel and it's, he's been that way for centuries. He doesn't actually know what's going on to us. These are the questions you're asking. And Isaiah says when God does show up, he's going to speak comfort. He's going to speak tenderly to his people because that's what they need in the moment. That's what they're waiting for is God to show up in comfort and tenderness, to woo them, to, to call them back to them himself, to, to tell them, listen, your hard service, the reason you're in exile in the first place, the reason everything is so messed up, that's been taken care of now. Like the, the stuff that has held you locked in your slavery, uh, which is sin itself, which is their breaking of the covenant, that's going to be paid for. And, and you're going to know that I'm coming because what's going to come before that comfort and before that, that tender, gentle, loving coming is going to be a voice of one in the wilderness calling, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for his people. God will come. He'll be preceded by the voice. The voice is going to be crying out, letting people know God is about to come. And when he does, he will become, because he's doing something about this whole situation in the first place, and we know much more than Israel, too. God is going to come, and he's, he's not just going to take care of Israel's sin. He's going to take care of everyone's sin. He's not going to just do something about the evil that takes place for Israel. He's going to take, play, or take care of the evil that takes place in the whole rest of the world as well. So let's get back to John. Then John gave this testimony. Here we see that word testimony again. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the God's chosen one. So in the book of John here, John the writer doesn't give us the whole story. I think it's pretty clear that John, so most, most people think John writes his gospel far after the other three. So John seems like to assume that most people who are reading his book have read the other gospels too because this story of, of, of Jesus getting baptized by John, of the Holy Spirit coming down to rest on him like a dove, is detailed in the other gospels. So he's just kind of like, he assumes you know that this is what happened when Jesus shows up to John. So he kind of skips over that part. But he does give us this sort of like... Uh, um, piece of information that that's when John knew that this is like, this is it. This is, this is God coming to comfort, to tenderly and gently care for his people. This, this is what's taking place. And so I think here is like an important observation for us to make. And it's going to be one of our main application points, but I want to uh, bring it up first. John knew one thing, and that's all he needed to know. All right? John, um, he, he didn't know what it would look like when God showed up. He didn't even know what would actually happen 
all he knew, and this is all he needed to know to do his job, to go into the wilderness, to baptize people, to call for repentance, to tell people that God was coming, is just that. That God was going to come, and he was going to do something about evil, and he was going to bring comfort. And when Jesus showed up, that's when he knew. That's when he knew it. He knew it when he could see it. He wasn't ready for it. It's not like he had this, like, uh, you know, this sort of, like, on this date, this is going to happen. This is exactly what it's going to look like. He didn't have any of that. He just knew the one thing. We're going to talk about the importance of that here in a little bit. But first, I want to kind of return to this witness theme that we're talking about. This is our first point of application. So because there are witnesses, because of John's effort and the rest of the Bible's effort to, effort to present us with witnesses or testimony of what's taking place in Jesus. Jesus' coming is like a reality that we got to deal with. Jesus is God coming, and this is taking place in history, to actually come and to comfort and to do something about evil. I think this is something we don't think about often enough, and I think we should, and I want to challenge you to do that today. So let me use something that we're all talking about today, the coronavirus, right? Now we're living here in, in, in the Twin Cities area where there's like one case that we, we've had. It just happened the other day, right? I think somewhere in Ramsey County, um, someone finally got the coronavirus. But, but like we know going on, you know, in China and in Washington and California, like this is like a, a big deal. But it's not really affecting us right now, right? So we can kind of choose to do two things with that information. The fact that it's not like, I'm, you know, you're not actually catching it. You're not actually in the hospital because of this right now. Like we can choose to either take it seriously and act like it's a historical, like, like fact, right? Something that impacts our lives and we should respond to even though it's not actually, you know, attacking us in the, in the moment, or we can just ignore it, right? And that's for sure what some people are doing. They're just saying, ah, I'm not, I don't got to worry about this right now. I'm just going to not deal with it. Now, that doesn't make it any less of like a reality, right? Just you ch- choosing to put your fingers in yours and go la 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 does not make the coronavirus, doesn't make you immune to it, right? It doesn't mean that it's not the sort of thing that you have to be taking seriously and dealing with. Now, we like, we can do the same thing with the Bible, right? We can kind of, and it's good, right? It's a good thing that, that like, so many people who, who are Christians ha- have come to know God because of, like, an experience. Like, they've experienced Jesus. They've experienced God's love, right? And that's how we, we talk about it. We want you to experience God every Sunday morning here through worship, through the preaching, through, through hearing God's word, through people coming up to you, you know, through the Spirit moving through us and causing us to love one another. We want to experience God in that way, actively in the present. But one other thing we need to take seriously is the fact that this is a historical reality, right? And that should matter to us even in the moments where we're not feeling like this is like an important thing on us, right? We still have to take take stock of the fact that this is a historical reality. It actually took place, and the Bible's trying to, like, tell us about this, right? That's what the Bible is, you know, at least partly what it is. So a couple, couple things I, I could imagine, like, a skeptic hearing that saying a couple of things to it. First of all, the, the thing might, you might say is, like, what about the bias, of the New Testament, right? What, can we actually treat this as a historical reality? Can we treat these as historical documents when they're, they're so clearly biased? They're not trying to tell us real history, right? It, of course it's not real history because they're telling us about Jesus and trying to you know, explain this doctrine of the gospel to you. So it's biased, clearly. We can't treat it as like a real historical source. We need to look outside of the Bible. We can't trust it as witnessing anything to us except the bias of the people who wrote it. Right? That's how we're tempted to look at the Bible sometimes in our culture. A couple responses to that. First of all, all history is biased, okay? Sorry to break it to you, but 
if we applied that like measure of criticism to every historical source out there, we wouldn't be able to read any history. We would not literally be able to look at anything and understand it as truly historical because all history comes from somewhere. All right? I was, uh, just an example of this is, uh, um, okay, so the Korean War. We learn about the Korean War growing up, right? And it's not a war that we're like, think it was a great war. You know, we don't treat it like World War I or World War II is this great, big, awesome victory that we had. But we definitely think we were the good guys in that. And we definitely think, like, it was totally justified, everything that happened in the Korean War, right? Okay, if you go to North Korea, which I imagine none of you will probably go to North Korea in your lifetime, um, but if you go to North Korea, there's actually a museum there. It's called the Sinchon Museum of American War Atrocities. It's actually a museum dedicated to talking about how terrible Americans are and how awful we were specifically in the Korean War. And it actually has like pictures and wax figures, and it sounds very gruesome, actually, but detailing these atrocities that Americans did in the Korean War. And this is the, the, the history that Koreans learn about that war and about who Americans are. It's completely different history than what we learn. Now, we can debate over like the historicity of these events that this museum talks about or whatever, but the most important thing to take out of it is just we're going to learn history a certain way because of the people teaching us history, and the Koreans, the North Koreans are going to learn history a certain way because of who's teaching them history and where they're coming from. And that should just get, you know, cause us to, to, to understand the fact that Every history we receive has some, is told from the perspective of the people who interpret it. That doesn't make it any less of history. We can still apply certain levels of historical rigor to it to try to va validate it, but we can't just discount something because we think the authors might have been biased, right? That's just not smart, <laughs> if I'm being honest, okay? So we can, we can look at the Bible and say, yeah, the fact that these guys clearly have an agenda doesn't make it any, what they're talking about any less like, historical, any less reason for us to not read it and to look at it and to treat it as like an actual historical thing that happened, no matter what I am thinking or feeling about that in the moment. And this is, this is what the Bible is. This is kind of the second thing to say about the, the bias, uh, the so-called bias of the Bible is the Bible's not, it's like, look what John is doing. It's not just written as like a sort of, um, just here's a list of things, of rules you got to do or follow, or here's a list of things about God. That certainly, you know, pops up in the Bible. But look at what John is trying to do. He's trying to, to bring witnesses forth to you, people that, maybe like would actually be known to the to the readers of his gospel in that time period and and try to just talk about like this is why this is what these people say about Jesus so you should pay attention to him too um, the gospel or the Bible's largely a collection of documents that are just witnessing the historical reality. Just think about what the New Testament is made up of. Okay, the Gospels, the four Gospels. If we look at, if we try to compare what genre of writing that is with other um, books that are or that are written around the same time, it's very clear that the go the Gospel authors are trying to write those as similar to other biographies in the time and place that that they're writing it. So so they have more crossover with just biographies about famous people than anything else. It's clear that the authors of the Gospels intended you to read this and read it as like a historical report of something that happened. And John writes it as someone who was actually on the ground and the other three Gospels write it as um, compiling. Like it's very clear they, they went and interviewed a lot of people and kind of put that together. And the same is true with the letters in the New Testament too. What Paul is writing, what um, you, you know, all these other letters. and They're just letters. Like they're emails that we have put in our Bible. 
right? They, they, they're, they're written like to testify to an actual historical situation that's taking place in, in a certain time and place. Okay, so this is what the New Testament is. So we need, like, we need, there's a whole dimension of what the Bible is that we read as like inspired, inerrant, the word of God. All true, right? All stuff that we believe. But we have to understand that like this is just witnessing to something historically that happened that matters and that we can't, like we have to treat it that way. Like that's what we mean as Christians. If we pull the historical piece out of the puzzle, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus didn't die and didn't rise again. If we pull that historical fact out, like he says, there's no point in being a Christian. Like, what are you doing here? Go do something else more important with your life. Because none of the stuff is true if it historically didn't happen. So it's important for us to kind of take uh, John seriously, John the, the writer, seriously when he introduces these witnesses to us, to take a, uh, pay attention to it. Now I realize that that can be hard. The Bible's a big book, right? There's a lot of stuff in it that is, seems weird sometimes. It doesn't always make sense. And, and like there are parts of the Bible, I know this is true for me, I know this is true for you in the crowd, that like you may read and you may be like, I don't know if I can get on board with that always. I'm not, I'm not totally sure how I feel about that thing. It's something I'm still processing and I might be processing it for a long time. I want to tell you that that's not a reason to discount what is taking place in the rest of the Bible. Okay, and this is our second point of application, is that we can rest firm also knowing one thing, just like John, that God has come. You remember how John the Baptist, he seemed to not really know, that, what, you know who Jesus was? Like, he, didn't, he didn't really have it all figured out. It's pretty clear. Like, there was a lot of stuff that he was like, I wasn't in that meeting. I didn't get all that information, but I got enough information to go out and do this thing. And he felt totally comfortable doing that, operating off of the one thing that he knew. And that one thing is that God would come, and when he did come, he would come in comfort, and he would come in power, and he would come to do something about evil in the world. That's what he would do. And that was all John needed to know to go out and do it. He didn't have to have everything else figured out. We can do the same thing as John. We can, we can go out resting firm, believing that God has come because of the witness that we have in books like John that Jesus has come. He's done something about evil in the world and he's done something about our sin and we can, we can rest firm in that, going out even if we feel uncertain sometimes. Now here's the problem is we hate uncertainty. Right? We want to have everything controlled. We want to have a firm grasp on everything before we go and do it. Think about the last big decision you made. I think this is probably particularly true of millennials. Like, what level of certainty did you want to have on what you were doing before you went and did it? Did you feel like, like you, could, you could make a decision to go do something before you had anything less than like 90% certainty on it? Probably, you know, some of you maybe, you have a higher risk tolerance than others. But for some of you, we were like, no, I wanted 110% actually certainty before I was willing to go do anything in regards to this. So this is how we are. We don't like the uncertainty. We want to know everything before we go out and do it. We want to know exactly what's going to happen if we go do something. We want to know what the consequences of it will be. And we want to be able to assess whether or not the consequences are something like that outweigh the, the positives or the benefits of it, Right? That's us, right? Just, just, think, just think back on yourself. We're called to something called faith. We're, we're called to go out in the certainty that, that we know God has come and that we can rest in that as we go out. And, and what we're called to be is we're called, as we go out, to be voices like John. We're, we're, our testimony is that God has come and, 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 and that what, what Isaiah is talking about has taken place. We don't have to know how it's all going to figure out itself. But we can, we can go out 
in, in, in proclaiming as voices in the wilderness that God has come and he, and he has come in comfort and he's come to do something about evil. That's all that John the Baptist was, right? We can go out and preach the good news in someone else's wilderness. Maybe, maybe you're called to be a voice for somebody that God has come and they're out in the wilderness, right? They are dying. They are, they are baking in the sun. They don't have any water. They don't have any food. They just feel stuck in the wilderness. And you're called to be a voice, like John the Baptist to them, wherever they're at. Maybe that's what you're called to do. And you don't know exactly what's going to happen for them. But you know that God has come and he's called you to comfort, to be a voice of comfort, just like John the Baptist. And you can rest firm in that because you can look back at what John tells us, that God has come. And that's all you know. That's okay. That's actually, okay. That's actually what, how it's supposed to work, you guys. We're called to be voices in, in someone else's wilderness. And when we're in the wilderness, too, we can let the voice of John the Baptist, the voice of the other witnesses that come forth in the book of John, speak tenderly to our hearts, to know that even though we don't know how this is all going to work out, that God has come, and he is coming in comfort. He's coming in gentleness. He's come to do something about our sin. He's come to do something about the consequences of our sin. He's come to do something about the consequences of other people's sin that impact us, right? Evil that's done to us, maybe. Whether it's some person or, or even, even other evils, like physical evils, right? If, if you're worried about the coronavirus, like, you can, you can, I'm just using that as an example, right? Like, you can rest firm knowing God has come to do something about that stuff, to give us hope in the midst of that, just like John the Baptist is preaching to all those people who, who are coming out to the wilderness to meet him, to get baptized, to repent, and to wait for God's coming. We're called to be voices in the wilderness, just like John the Baptist. Now, here's the thing. John the Baptist, he gets beheaded. He's not the best friend of the people in power, Right? It's not, an, it's not a comfortable job. If John had known what would happen, you know, if he, he had known exactly what was going to take place and him going out in this, you know, he maybe, maybe he would have said, no way, dude. I don't, you know, I, I don't know what he would have done. Right? But we're called to go out and knowing sometimes it might be uncomfortable to still be those voices, just like John the Baptist, in the places that God has called us to go be voices. And to know that, that no matter what that looks like, that we can speak comfort to those way down to, by sin, even if it's us. We can speak justice, that justice will happen because God has come. That's our calling, and that's what, we're, what, we, are, what we hear as we read through the book of John as well. So, so I want you this week, as you go out from here, to be praying and asking God, like, where are you calling me to be a voice in someone else's wilderness? Uh, or asking God, like, bring a voice to my wilderness if that's where I'm at right now. Comfort me. That's what, that's what the message, the historical message that God has come is proclaiming to us. Let's close in prayer and, and communion and worship just like we normally do as we give praise to the one who has come into our uncertainty to be a voice in our wilderness, our wilderness of sin, of death, of oppression. We're going to take communion now as we uh, worship God and remember what it took for, God, for him to come, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're going we're gonna to take communion to remind ourselves of that, and then we're going to enter into a time of worship to praise that God who comes to us at our worst points, like the, the least deserving people that you could imagine are the ones that God comes to, uh, that John is a voice proclaiming uh, hope and, and justice to in the wilderness. That's, who God com- that's how he comes to us, and we're going to worship him because he is that God. 
So let's, let's do that. And if you need prayer, right, if you, are, if you feel like you're stuck in the wilderness or if you feel like not sure where you're being called to be a voice in the wilderness, we're going to have someone in the back who will be able to pray for you if you want prayer for that or anything else for that matter. Father, we, we, we thank you that you have, <clears throat> you have come and we, can, we don't have to feel like you've come. We don't have to, to wake up every morning feeling just so good and so great about everything in order to go out and actually operate in the certainty that you've come. We thank you that you've given us the witness of Scripture um, that, that testifies that you have come and, and, and we can know that one thing, Lord. Even if we feel paralyzed by fear or doubt, I pray that you would give us faith and hope to go out in the knowledge of that one thing, just like John the Baptist does, and that you would, you would make us voices in the wilderness, you, whether it's our own wilderness or, or in someone else's wilderness. Help us to be like John, to witness that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world has come and he has done something. He's done something about our own sin. He's done something about the sin in the world. And we can feel comfort because of that. We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.